Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In this episode, I'm joined by Amy Schuster, CEO and founder of Bandwidth Strategy. Amy and her team at Bandwidth Strategy offer C-suite level support to companies that are around 5 million to 100 million in revenue that are looking to scale their businesses through strategic operations, digital marketing, demand generation, sales, tech, and revenue. We discuss in the episode Amy's role as a fractional CMO. And as you'll hear in the episode, it's a term that I wasn't familiar with. So we break it down and understand what a fractional CMO is what a fractional CMO does, as well as exploring some of the benefits and challenges of hiring a fractional CMO. Enjoy the episode. This is Internet Marketing. I am here with Amy Schuster, CEO and founder at Bandwidth Strategy. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Scott, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for our discussion. I'd like to know a little bit more about what you're doing day to day at the moment at Bandwidth Strategy. So could you talk a little bit about your role in the company? Yeah, absolutely. So at at Bandwidth, we are a organization that supports uh, B2B uh, companies with their marketing and operations needs. Um, so I like to tell most people that, uh, I'm really good at selling the invisible. Um, if it is a product, if it is, uh, paper towels or Doritos, um, really not my cup of tea. Um, but if it is a service or a software as a service, there's a long sales cycle. Um, if it is something that requires more than one meeting and a cart to check out, that is really what we do at Bandwidth. We support organizations um, that have those longer sales cycles and are uh, looking for opportunities to grow their uh, marketing organizations and specifically to help align their sales and marketing groups together. And I was saying just a moment ago that I love to know how people ended up in the positions they're in today, especially if they're in what I consider to be quite a niche role. And I'd consider you to be in quite a niche area. It's consulting for very kind of specific types of companies. And actually, you just said there you have some preferences around the types of companies that you work with. So talk to me a little bit about your history and how you ended up where you are today. Absolutely. I think 
like most folks, it didn't start out this way. I was actually listening to an earlier podcast of yours with Darren Teague. Um, and he talked about the fact that nobody, um, nobody, uh, starts off there in kindergarten saying, I want to be an email marketer. I don't think anybody starts out wanting to be, you know, a B2B marketer to companies five million to a hundred million in revenue that sell services, right? That's kind of odd. Um, but where I really started was, uh, uh, roughly about 25 years ago. Um, I like to take us all the way back for those of us that are from that era to the time when we were mass blasting, uh, press releases on fax machines. Um, that's really where, where I started at a, a small organization, a nonprofit, um, that, uh, supplied legal, uh, legal services, um, within the Chicago area. And uh, that's how we let people know our news was uh, mass blasting uh, a, a press release via fax machine. Uh, that was a point in time where I really think sales and marketing, if you had both uh, functions lived in completely different sides of the physical building, um, those were not organizations that talked to each other um, nearly enough or had migrated towards the center of what we now think of as a revenue organization. Um, but that's where, where I started. Um, I, I moved on in my career, um, in the first 10 years to supporting, uh, legal organizations. So again, it was all B2B services. I was learning the basics of, of how you sell people, how you sell relationships, how you sell services. Um, I took a turn in the late, uh, 2008, 2009 era, started my own company. Um, I knew that at that point in time, I wasn't going to be very appealing to any sort of digital organization because I had been in this more traditional um, services-based area. So I started my own business. It was called Ecoscene. We reviewed eco-friendly products and services. Uh, I'll take some folks back in time as well. Very similar to Daily Candy and Thrillist at the time when email marketing and email newsletters were really starting to come on the scene. Um, that's what I did and, uh, started that, created that, ended up selling that and transitioning into the next 10 years of my career, which was, um, supporting usually post series A, pre series B, um, orgs that were uh, looking to either start or scale their marketing departments. Uh, so I did that for a number of different Chicago based, uh, software as a service organizations, uh, here in town. And then my last full-time role, um, was the global CMO of an organization called Miller Hyman Group, which has uh, its tentacles all over the world, uh, including I had a, a, a fun team that was in the UK as well. Um, so it's lovely to hear British accents again. It makes me happy. Um, and after uh, we had a successful sale to Corn Ferry, I uh, went out on my own and I've been doing fractional uh, C-suite work uh, for the better part of three years. Um, and Again, looking back, there's this theme of invisibility and services and software as a service, but I never, yeah. I never set out to do that, right? It really was, um, happenstance of, of that first job and learning how to sell the invisible. Firstly, if you're between the age of, I don't know, five and 10, you're aspiring, you're thinking about your career and you do want to go into email marketing and you're listening to this, it's totally fine to aspire to be an email marketer. <laughs> I don't want to put off the aspiring email market. I'll let uh, my six-year-old daughter know that's a safe bet for her. She's yeah. he did ask me because my my husband is an attorney and it's very easy to explain. She asked me what I did and I tried to explain it, and she just looked at me quizzically and said, "So why aren't you a lawyer?" I'm like, 
I don't know. Yeah. Um, what uh, What is interesting, and this, you know, it doesn't come up so much actually with um, on this podcast, but you've gone through that journey of going from traditional marketing to digital marketing. And you kind of glossed over it, like as if it was fairly seamless during, you know, you said you, you went from traditional, you started your own company, but I'd imagine that must have been a difficult time and, or an interesting time at least. So I am curious as to how you've adapted to the digital landscape, having come from a more traditional marketing background. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that journey. How have you approached learning? What I would say is, um, it was, Difficult and interesting, but in the moment, you never know, right? You're just <laughs> living it. Yeah. So what I saw, again, I'd spent, I'd spent about eight years in traditional services-based marketing at law firms. And um, I don't know how many attorneys you know. They're not usually the first ones to really want to get out in front of the technology. Um, they are, you know, usually the last adopters, not the first adopters. And I knew... I just, I saw the digital sphere coming and I knew I wanted to be a part of it. And I knew that I had to transition out. Um, so the difficulty wasn't so much the path. I knew how to get there, right? I knew I was going to have to do my own thing, prove myself, find a foothold into a digital experience. Um, I, you know, I was never really faced with the idea of like, go back, you know, go get an MBA or do this, you know, start your own company thing. It was you know, the MBA wasn't going to get me where I wanted to go. So I knew it was starting my own company. I knew it was proving myself. Um, and, and I knew it was an opportunity to take what I had done, um, and what I had learned in terms of the fundamentals around, around good content, um, good services based marketing and all of those fundamentals and bring those to a digital realm. And I felt like I could do it. Right. And, I was in my late twenties at the time. Um, it was me and my dog. I, you know, it was a fairly low barrier to entry for me. I also knew that if it all fell apart, I could go back and do that. Right? I could always go back and and get a job as a as a business development manager at a law firm. Um, but if I didn't do this and I didn't try, I wasn't going to get the shot um, to do what I saw on the horizon and luckily was able to fall into, which was really this this digital marketing world. Hmm. I can hear in your voice and just you talking about that journey. It sounds to me like very early on, as you were going through this period, you kind of had principles. It sounds to me like you had principles related to marketing that you felt really passionate about. And so it almost didn't matter what marketing medium you went into because you were able to apply these principles that you learned early on and they kind of drove your learning and have driven your career to date. Um, is that a fair assumption? Did it work out that way? Absolutely. I, I mm. don't think I would have articulated it as eloquently as you just did. Mm. But yes, absolutely. Good content, good knowledge base of your product, a good understanding of product market fit, um, knowing your audience, I see, these are all really basic elements of any marketing. Mm. Um, I get into this conversation a lot right now, and I, I just posted on LinkedIn not too long ago about um, when LinkedIn actually came with that the AI component. This yeah. was like two weeks ago or whatever, and I kind of flipped out and wanted to do an experiment and did it online, and it ended up having this like fun discussion amongst a lot of my friends and colleagues. But 
you know, everybody's been, been predicting the end of everything, right? The end of content, the end of email. AI isn't going to end anything, right? It's going to supplement. And I think that there are lots of good conversations to be had about how it will supplement and how it will help us. Um, but yeah, the fundamentals are good content is good content. Good SEO is good SEO. Good email marketing is good email marketing. And and that really does come from that services-based business that I started with because they're for <laughs> the negative of being there, right, in terms of them not wanting to join up with the digital as quickly or still um, is is counteracted by the fact that I did learn those fundamentals um, and that was ingrained with me so early and the, the virtue of having to stand for something and having that, that um, conversation be something based in authenticity, not just trying to sell something um, I think is part of that. So that was a very long, long winding answer to yes, I, I think I had those fundamentals. No, I think it's a, and the reason I asked the question is because I think it's an important lesson to learn or at least something to reflect on particularly for young marketers um by anyone really and the reason i ask it is because working agency side and working with lots of different companies um experiencing people that suffer from kind of shiny object syndrome or worrying about tactics i know sometimes marketing can feel really overwhelming you can feel like you're chasing your tail but i think if you give yourself time as a marketer to reflect on the things that you believe in and have your own marketing principles that kind of drive your career and really drive your motivation. It can be the foundation that you build from, and it also can be the anchor that you come back to when times are difficult. And that's what I found for myself. And it's really interesting to hear, again, sometimes I can hear it in people's voices when they have those principles that they've almost adopted early in their career, because it means that you aren't as phased as well, actually, you just gave the perfect example. Something like AI comes along and all of a sudden there's lots of noise around AI and people are worried about their their careers or their jobs or what's going to happen and there's lots of debate. But I think people that have marketing principles nailed really can cut through that noise a lot easier. And for me, it just not only does it give me confidence, it um, helps me remain calm as well. And uh, I just think that's important. I mean, we this is going off into a different topic about mental health and marketing, but for me, it's a way to um, also, uh, it helps with my mental well-being related to kind of overwhelm and that kind of feeling too. Absolutely. I, it can be overwhelming. I it, I also, I, I love what you just said there about marketing and mental health. I, I do think it can be um, a point of analysis paralysis too, mm. of just yeah. having so many options in front of you. Um, and I know that you've talked about this on, on the podcast before, just in terms of if an organization doesn't have those USPs, it being a red flag for you. If an organization doesn't have a fundamental strategy and understanding of who they are, and they're just trying to grow for growth's sake, you know, just get the eyeballs, just get the eyeballs. I, I think that is a very big red flag for me. Um, I, I I need to see that there is substance in in what it is that we're trying to go out and market um, in order to be able to tell that story. Um, storytelling is incredibly important and it, it doesn't just apply outside of the organization. You know, when you get into the sales marketing alignment conversations, marketing sales is, is marketing's client. I need to tell those stories and be confident in the stories that I'm telling to sales 
as to how we are bringing them the types of leads that they need in order to close business um, and what those mechanisms are and how they've gone through the funnel. Um, and that takes storytelling too. So it's a bit of a side conversation in, in terms of the storytelling, but I, I really do think that being able to ground yourself in a couple of fundamentals does help on the, you know, avoiding the analysis paralysis, making sure that you aren't overwhelmed um, and, and understanding what the story is that you want to tell whomever your client is internal or external. Mm. Something else that seemed clear as you were talking and, and kind of talking about your role and what you look for and who you like to work with is this interest in SaaS companies in the SaaS space. And I'm just curious if, there's anything that comes to mind for you, like why is that of particular interest for you? Has anything kind of triggered your interest or success in that particular space? Probably that it just fits under the category in the, of the invisible, right? If you're a software as a service, you can't touch it. I mean, yes, if you are a Dropbox, right, or a um, DocuSign, I, I can I can go in and and purchase that product through a a cart functionality, but the organizations that I work with usually don't have those options. They are usually an enterprise level sale. They're not selling hundred dollar products. They're selling multi-thousand, hundred thousand, sometimes million dollar contracts. And you need to create a interest amongst a, a specific audience through all of the different channels and educate them for long periods of time before they're ready to to buy your product. So um, the SaaS piece of it to me, again, it's a service. It, you are you are selling a solution to a problem. Any the same way a lawyer is selling a solution to a problem, a doctor is selling a solution to a problem, a software as a service is selling a solution to a problem. Um, and to me, that was always, you know, became the theme of my career is what you know, how can I help those organizations to better tell their stories? And you used the phrase, I think, during the introduction, fractional C-suite consultant. Is that the kind of title that you give yourself? I do. It's funny. I did a little bit of research um, and I, in terms of just Googling, and I'm trying to find the statistic right now, but I believe the term fractional CMO in 2018 was searched something like 218 times and in 2022 was searched over 2000 times so it, it is a term uh that has gained interest um certainly within the pandemic and is an opportunity to get someone who has the experience level of you know 20 to 25 years in your business quickly without necessarily having to do, you know, the traditional onboarding, the, um, you know, the longer ramp up, but the true execution portion um, of, of what, what a fractional can really bring to the table. Um, I would say in the past we were called consultants um, and I certainly do consulting and I also do, um, you know, project work, but doing fractional to me is there's a very specific, um, a very specific context, very specific elements and cadence to, to how you do fractional work. I'm going to ask you to break that down because I'm so curious. So, uh, and just for some context for you, I don't really, I've not heard this phrase before. So it's interesting that you talked about the rise of the phrase. I do understand 
about how that might work in some of these companies. But actually, maybe that's a good place to start. So give yeah. me an example. Some, one of um, the companies that you've worked with, talk to me about how you've onboarded with them and um, maybe what you've bought to the company that they wouldn't have had without you. Maybe talk through that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. And and I'm curious, I do wonder, just to your point of not having heard of it as much, if it is somewhat regional, right? Maybe. If you yeah. sort of made this a new phraseology within the US that hasn't come over as quickly um, to your side of the pond. But um, I'll break down the differences. And then I'll talk about how I have implemented some of those in in an actual uh, engagement. So the difference to me between a fractional and you know a full-time or a consultant is, as a fractional, I'm devoting a certain amount of time, right? I'm saying I'm with this organization for 20 hours a week for probably no less than six months, right? They have some substantial problems for which they need specific long-term strategic and tactical help, and I'm able to do that. I usually get an email address with that organization. I'm privy to financials. Um, I'm most likely included on leadership team meetings. Um, I may be managing or pseudo managing um, some of the people uh, within the organizations, either bringing them up within the organization or managing them out sometimes as well. So that's really how I see a fractional role developing. The difference being in a consulting capacity, I'm I'm just jumping in. I've got a specific project to deliver on. Um, probably there, you know, maybe 90 days. Um, not getting that email. The financials maybe are relevant, maybe you're not. But I'm not looking at the totality of the business. I'm looking at a specific issue that I'm trying to uh, support for that organization. Um, and how it gets implemented, and I, I would say the why uh, is really important. I. I'm able to drop into an organization very quickly because of a couple things. Number one, I've seen this movie before, right? There aren't many organizations, five to a hundred million dollars that aren't, aren't dealing with the same problems that I've seen over and over again. So I'm able to make impact very quickly. I, I say this and it sounds so mean and it's not meant to, but like, I'm not there to make friends. This is not my full-time job. Um, I don't need to worry as much about the politics. I'm certainly not going to, uh, you know, come in and, and, and railroad over everyone. But my concerns aren't as much, oh, gosh, am I going to be fired in 12 months? My concerns are, how do I make the most impact as quickly as possible? Um, so my needs for that, you know, those politicking issues just really aren't there as much. Um, so, I'm, so I'm able to, to affect change very quickly. Um, and, and I'm also able to be an ear to the CEO a lot of the times. And it's funny how often that happens, right? They've got their leadership team. They've got their direct reports. They've got what's going on in the business. They don't have someone on the side that they're just able to problem solve with. Um, and because I'm not a direct report, because they don't have to do annual compensation analysis for me, because I don't have to necessarily be proving things in the same way a full-time one. Um, they're able to confide in me and really work out business problems that they might not already um, have that person if they don't have a coach or, or someone who feel they feel comfortable doing that with. So those are a couple of the ways that I differentiate uh, a, a fractional role um, and how I see it different than a consultant or a full-time. You talked about there that um, you don't approach things like cold-heartedly. You're not cutthroat, but you're there to make quick decisions. What are some of the most challenging parts? Because that's, that does sound difficult. There's a certain type of skill or characteristic 
that enables you to do that. Not everybody could do that. So maybe what are some of the skills that you possess um, that you think are important to hold this kind of role? One of the skills that I think is universal that I have employed throughout my career is improv, which I think is is really an interesting skill. I encourage anyone, have encouraged, you know, dozens and dozens of people who have reported to me in the past. It is some of the best business training you can ever have in terms of how to create environments in which lots of people's ideas are heard, accepted, grown, grown within that ecosphere um, without making people feel like using your language. It's just a constant cutthroat. You know, one of my favorite examples is the yes and concept, right? It's really making space and opportunity for anybody's ideas to come through and not saying, no, that won't work or yes, but that's not something we can do right now. It, it, there's a, a whole world around this concept of yes and. Um, so it really is making space and opportunity for people to be heard uh, and, and to, to bring their own ideas to the table. Um, so I would say that's one of the, the techniques that I use throughout my career and certainly serves me well in a fractional capacity. Um, I also think that understanding and just that level of honesty, more times than not when I walk in, especially if there's a junior person who's been doing this work, I will have a very honest conversation with them if they're not performing. You know, are you happy here? Is this the place that's, that's bringing you the type of fulfillment that you want? And if not, you know, let's, let's figure out what that looks like. Either we can make it happen here or I can help you to figure out what happens next. Um, but I, a lot of times when it's not phrased out as, you know, you're not performing, you're not, you know, you're being fired, but instead like what is going to make you happy and fulfilled in your career? It, it's just that twist on thought, um, as to how you can help an organization. Um, and then finally it's, it's having the understanding of the, the, digital marketing world. And luckily, to your point, I've, I've grown up within it. So being able to dig in, being able to understand the, the hub spots, the active campaigns, the sales forces of the world, and jump in and really analyze the data quickly, I think has has served me well as a fractional. Is it easier to go through the process of this in a face-to-face environment, in an office environment? Or can you go through this process remotely? And have you been through both? Yes. I have been through both. I I've only been doing this in the pandemic. So yeah. I don't I don't know another world. Right. right. Um, what I will say is my most successful longest term relationships were where there were opportunities to meet face to face. So absolutely can I do a lot of the work um independently and and over Zoom? Yes. Um I, I just went to New York for a client. We had a, they had a two-day offsite. I came. I ran a bunch of programs for them. I, so much value in that. I don't need to be there every day. They, they don't even have a full-time office. But I, I think it's a commentary more on work in general than it is necessarily you know, how it affects fractional. I think all of us need that, that FaceTime um, to build those relationships, to, to demonstrate value, to hear from others, to get their value. I I don't know that that's unique to me, but yes, I can do both. Yes, I have done both. The most successful ones are the ones where we have opportunity to meet together in person. Yeah. But it's not impossible. To, I guess that's that was my train of thought and my root of thought really is that I imagine because you're approaching a sensitive topic, if you are going in making 
big decisions, important decisions about a company and then having to communicate that to teams. Um, I was curious about really the differences in doing that remotely versus in person. It would make sense to me that it's easier to deliver that message in person, um, as in you can communicate your message more clearly as opposed to remotely. Is that a fair assumption? I think it's fair. I also think that I was doing this for a pretty significant amount of time prior to the pandemic in that I ran a global team. So in a global team environment, I, I you know, again, pre-pandemic, I wasn't able to always meet with people face-to-face because I was in Chicago and they were in Japan. Um, so this this problem, if it is a problem, right, is, is not unique to the pandemic, certainly mm-hmm. exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, but I would say... I certainly don't, and, and this this goes back to a different article I wrote um, on the role of women in um, in post pandemic work and what that's meant, uh, and why I see so much value in being together. I, I don't think it is binary. You don't have to be in office or totally remote. I do think there's value in the in the and right in the both. And it sounds like um, I read that article, and that's probably why that question was top of mind for me as well. But it's um, the it sounds like a key skill in all of this is adaptability. Is that fair? Adaptability, absolutely. I, I God, I think that's all of us, right? In the pandemic, I think we all had to figure out how to be more adaptable in our families, in our work lives, in our understandings of relationships, and all of it. But yes. Um, I would say one of the unique parts of being a fractional is, I, and I, I sort of have this hierarchy of need that I share with people, but at, at the top of the hierarchy is, are you comfortable starting something that you're not going to see come to fruition? Right, yeah. Um, I was always one of those people who really, really loved the first year of a job. I That was always where I got the most lit up, where I was most excited. Um, so I was incredibly adaptable, to use your, your term, um, to that first year, to that new environment. I liked that the most. I didn't need to see the same programs run over and over and over again. That never really got me excited. But there are people for whom that type of routine and that that you know predictability is really important, and that's how they thrive, and that's where they get their success. If that is where you are a happy person, fractional would be a very hard environment for you because you're constantly dropping into new things and having to be adaptable to new situations. Um, so I think for me, yes, being a fractional is is part and parcel of the fact that I can adapt to new situations and thrive. Yeah, that's such a fascinating insight about um, needing to see progress in marketing and also just knowing what gives you job satisfaction. I think at some point, it's your average life cycle with these companies. Did you say around six months? Is that about right? For me, it totally depends. It's a minimum. If you want to do, these are just my thoughts, right? I think every fractional is different, but to be an effective fractional, I think you have to do a minimum six months. I've had one client that I've been with for about three years. um, Another client that I was with for about 20 months. um, And then, you know, there are smaller consulting projects on the side, but um, yeah, I would say minimum six months. You, you really describe the benefits to companies about employing a fractional really well. And then I was looking at through your lens and thinking, well, what are some of the major benefits to you? And you actually started to talk about them really clearly. It's that the satisfaction in, it sounds like it's really motivating for you to be able to go into a business and make 
quick changes and provide really clear guidance very quickly. Is that what's most satisfying to you? Absolutely. I, 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 again, these movies are not unique to your point. This is a pretty niche area and I've seen these, you know, the, the struggles, the sales marketing alignment struggles, the technology struggles, they are, they are very similar from business to business. I can come in very quickly and make those decisions and, and help companies get on the right foot, um, without having to do all the things that never lit me up from a, you know, a full-time perspective. Um, and I'm able to do it on a, a, a really cost productive, uh, level for most organizations. They get the benefits of someone who's been, um, around for 25 years who can do this type of work, um, without having to employ them full time with all of what comes with that. Right. And financially, it's great because I get to charge an hourly rate or uh, a fee that commensurate with that. And there's no question, right? It's I'm delivering on exactly what they've asked me to do and they're getting value for their dollars. There's never a question of, oh gosh, like what, what's bandwidth doing? What's Amy doing? It's, it's clear. It's, it's such a transparent, um, uh, relationship that, that I really appreciate that never felt the same when I was a full-time employee. Are there any commonalities in how you approach each new relationship? So I'm thinking here that it sounds like one of the most exciting, but I'd imagine, I'd guess, a difficult task is cutting through the noise of a business and understanding what the key problems are and also what, I guess, um, you talked about gathering opinions and gathering voices making sure everyone's contributing so you have to download a lot of information really quickly do you have any common approach to that maybe if you talk through do you have a standard approach to that for each business that you work with i uh, to your point and everybody else that i listen to on podcasts i probably should i probably should have a pretty standard assessment that i do um, so that's a brilliant idea that I need to, at some point, put into practice. Um, on some levels, I feel like the cobbler's child with no shoes. Um, it took me forever to do the website, to get the assessments up. I just sort of dive in, um, and start working. What I, what I will say is universal. I have yet to walk into an organization, mostly because they won't need me. Um, and I question how many of them exist where they're like, my sales marketing teams are super aligned. They get along so well. Everybody's humming. Like that never happens. So more times than not, that's where I'm starting. And I'm putting into practice some very specific guardrails and rules, um, both from a technology perspective and from actually a meetings cadence, meeting cadence perspective to make sure that those individuals on both of those teams are moving closer to the center of, of, of creating a level of harmony, because that is really hard to find. Your split of time. So do you hold the position of, I guess, fractional consulting and CMO? You've written a lot about the CMO role as well. So mm-hmm. do, you, do you consider that you, um, when you're fractional consulting, do you also sometimes hold that CMO role? Is that how it works? Or Talk me through that. Yeah, more yeah. times than not, I'm either the fractional CMO or the fractional COO. Um, I, for a couple of reasons, one, it just gives me a you know a level of authenticity, um, some level of influence, probably not a ton of authority. 
Um, but you know, it, it allows me to, to come to the table. I think it makes the CEOs feel more comfortable, um, that they're spending the dollars that they are with someone who holds that title. Uh, so I would say in any other situation, it's usually just consulting work. I'm doing marketing consulting or operations consulting or sales enablement consulting. Yeah. And how many businesses are you working with at any given time usually? It's a great question. I have been up to as many as five and then I kind of lost my mind because that's really hard to do that much context switching as an individual, right? I work with and, and use a lot of um, uh, contractors in the industry to support me and yeah. um, we, we partner up. But um, I, I try three is my sweet spot, four is doable, five is a no-go um, from, from my perspective. Um, it's just too much context switching. Yeah, what, uh, describe context switching. So what is it that you find difficult about when you start to get to that four or five level? Yeah, so while there is a theme to all of my clients in that, again, we're selling the invisible, it's not something you can touch. There are differences in each of their businesses um, in understanding what they are trying to sell and what they are bringing to market. One might be a services-based business. One might be a technology-based business. Um, I have to learn about each of their uh, individual organizations and be able to move seamlessly into conversations throughout the day without screwing up uh, what I'm trying to talk about to from one organization to the other. Um, ironically, I've had two clients come in at the same time where the CEO had the first same first names. Um, that was a fun one. I was like, wait, which? Oh, oh you, okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Just don't send the wrong email. Um, so yeah, so for me, that's context switching. It's being able yeah. to move business to business seamlessly, which is obviously a very common thing amongst agencies. Yeah. I'm, I mean, again, I'm trying to look through this, uh, through your lens and you talked about working a lot remotely, particularly in the pandemic. And actually just before we started recording this, um, we kind of both laughed and had a, a bit of a moment, a bit of a pause where we said, it's nice to be off video for a moment and just doing an audio only podcast. Is that, um, do you find camera fatigue and being in video meetings? Is that real for you? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I mean, I'm not an in front of camera person. This um, experiment that I'm doing within my life right now of, um, you know, proactively going after more oppor- uh, more speaking opportunities and, and podcast opportunities. Um, I, I am, I'm a marketer. I'm in a marketer and an introvert. So yeah. like me being on camera is not a comfortable place for me. Um, so being on camera all day, every day, definitely not a comfortable place for me, but, um, I do see value and, and I see value in our world now. Um, so I, I certainly prefer it to be able to have the connection with my clients. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'd love a few more you know, audio only meetings. Yeah. You've talked a lot in this episode about your perspective. And um, you touched on a moment ago uh, about when you go into businesses and maybe some of the things that would trigger them to search for a CMO or a fractional consultant or a fractional CMO. So you talked about when sales and marketing aren't aligned. Um, I've forgotten you, you provided another example as well. I'm curious to, in closing for this episode to break down that topic a little bit. So a very broad question, but I know one that you're interested in and you must come across a lot is when is the right time to hire a fractional CMO? So break that down for me. What are some of the commonalities that make for a CMO a good fit and good timing? Yeah, 
I, I, if you are an organization that's got more than, say, a two-year window, I think that you are looking to bring on a full-time CMO. And what do I mean by that? If you are looking to do an acquisition, to be acquired, to do another round of fundraising, um, trying to bring on a full-time CMO is going to be a struggle because if we think about the fundamentals, marketing is your long game, sales is your short game. You bring on more salespeople to get deals done faster. You bring marketing on to make the top of the funnel fuller over a longer period of time. Um, CMOs are highly trained at building long-term plans, right? We're very good if you put us in that situation of creating, you know, of a five-year trajectory for the organization that's based on the fundamentals of the business, the growth trajectory. Uh, we, we want to help succeed on that long game. Hiring a full-time CMO in a sub 24 month situation is more likely than not going to end up with a lot of frustration because you won't have the budgets, you won't have the timetable, you won't have the runway, and it's not a great situation. So in, in, in that scenario, I really encourage organizations to either try and promote within. You might, you might have director who's in that organization that could bump up to a VP level, who could manage um, a big part of what you're trying to do, uh, and, and, you know, elevate that individual in order to, to move forward um, as, as a coach and a player in that particular situation. Um, or an alternative is, you know, looking outside in that sub 24 month period of time for a fractional, someone who can, who can come in, who can execute quickly, who's got the experience, um, but isn't necessarily going to have all of the different needs that a full-time CMO would have when we talked about at the beginning, the needs to create the relationships, the, the, uh, the ability to go to the long-term trajectory. Um, you really do need, need someone who can just come in and drop in and start to make some of the solutions happen quickly. So that's really the differences that I see. It's, you know, when are you planning to exit? Are you going to have the budgets and and who do you want to be at the helm for the particular point in time um, that you are are looking to bring in marketing support? From your perspective, uh, what are the red flags that you would look out for that would be definite no? So you cannot deliver any value to a particular company, people you wouldn't work with. Number one, and, and this happens a lot, I'll get a call from someone on C-suite and when we start to talk about the CEO, the CEO is just not interested in this, right? They have no interest. They're frustrated and annoyed by marketing or they've never had marketing before and they don't see the value. To me, that's a super red flag because it's really hard to convince someone um, that that they need you, right? And I, it's an uphill battle that really, to me, isn't most of the time probably isn't worth expending a ton of energy on. They're going to sabotage you from the beginning. Um, so that's a red flag for me. Um, I wouldn't say it's a red flag. It's just outside of my own ICP. I tend not to to focus on companies that are, are sub 5 million uh, US ARR just because it's just too early, right? They just don't have enough tailwinds behind them to get to the point where I can make a total difference. They probably don't have some of the systems stood up yet. Um, and, and that's not the type of thing you're going to want to 
pay a fractional CMO to do. Um, you can have some junior level folks do that. Um, and then, you know, if someone's in a, a CPG world, again, I'm not, I'm not good at paper towels and Doritos. Um, I, I'm happy. I have so many friends and so many colleagues who do that type of work, happy to pass them along. Um, but I really, again, I focus on, on that services-based business. And for me trying to jump into the CPG world, uh, it's just a different cadence and a different world than, than what I live day to day. And as you were talking, uh, I don't want to forget this just as we close out, but there was one key skill that came to mind for me that it sounds like, again, that you possess, which is really important to your role. And that's the ability to spot people that are perhaps ready to step up into leadership positions for the long-term benefit of the company. Firstly, is that statement true? Is that something that you look for? And has that always been a part of your career? Is that a skill that you've always possessed? That's a good question. I have loved mentoring and pulling people up into promotional opportunities. So yes, whether they have it innately or I challenge them into the opportunity, absolutely. What what I would say is it, it is certainly a part of, of what I do. Um, I think that a lot of times the folks that are left when I come to an organization are super frustrated, right? Because they've been through the rigmarole, they've been through the, you know, turnover and if they're willing to come on board and if they're willing to keep going there, there's a really interesting path on the other side of that, but they're, and, and it's expected, right? It's expected to be frustrated, um, to be a frustrating situation. Who's my boss? Where do I report to? What are my KPIs? And a lot of organizations don't do it well and certainly don't transition well. Um, and so I try to come in and again, have really transparent, really honest conversations about if people are happy at what they're doing and are they there because they want to be there or are they there because they have to be there? And, and those are important conversations too. So I, I would say spotting that level of opportunity within an individual. I also, I'm just a really honest person and making sure that I have really honest, authentic conversations with people that gets down to the level of what they need and what the business needs, I found is is something that I've always been able to do. And I, I serves me well. Well, I can tell you it comes across really well in podcasting. And a moment ago, you mentioned that this is kind of a journey of experimentation for you putting yourself out there on podcasts, perhaps being more introverted in this realm. But um, I've really enjoyed the episode today. And if people want to learn more about you and bandwidth strategy, where can they find you? Absolutely. Well, thank you for the compliment and the opportunity to be here. Uh, bandwidthstrategy.com is my uh, website, amy at bandwidthstrategy.com, or would love to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. Uh, those are really the best places to find me. Uh, we didn't discuss it in today's episode, but you're also the founder and co-chair of Women Influence Chicago. Do you want to let people know more about that and where they can find out information on that? Absolutely. So um, our accelerator has moved. Um, we, we run a uh, three-month accelerator uh, for women in Chicago through what uh, a, uh, it's called 1871 here. It's an incubator um, for everyone not in the U.S. 1871 is the uh, year of the Great Chicago Fire. Um, so they named the, uh, the incubator after that because of everything that rose out of 1871, which is a really cool story. Um, and Women Influence Chicago's uh, accelerator program is out of there. And uh, if you have any questions on it, if you're interested in it, 
Um, if you are a woman in a mid-level organization, either in Chicago or outside of Chicago, um, they are taking applications uh, and opportunities for you to grow within your current organization and uh, get to that next level uh, of promotion. So uh, please feel free to reach out to me about that. I'm happy to make the introductions. As listeners will know, all of the links to everything we've discussed today will be in the show notes. And for now, Amy, it's been a pleasure. Take care. This has been the Internet Marketing Podcast.